Our sermon today is taken from Exodus chapter 3, verse 1 to verse 22. This is the word of God. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And the Lord, then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that island, uh, that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who I am that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. He said, but I will be with you and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abram, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to remember throughout my all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abram, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand, and so I will stretch my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go, but I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor, and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing." You shall put them on, on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. This is the word of God. Amen. Thank you, Edric. 
Thank you, Joe. Makes me so happy. Uh, let me pray for the preaching of God's word. Father, thank you so much for condescending voluntarily to reveal yourself to us, to call us by name as you called Moses, to come down in the form of flesh, Father, in a form that we might understand, so that we might get to know you in a covenant, in a relationship. Father, help me be clear, help us understand this momentous and significant passage, and help us, therefore, apply these things to our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, we're continuing our series in the book of Exodus, the life of Moses specifically. And this passage is a significant passage. Uh, Exodus chapter 3 is one of the most famous passages in the Bible. The passage of the burning bush and the passage where God, for the first time really, explicitly reveals his name. He is who he is. I am who I am. So what, is these all, what, do, what do all these things mean, right? This is also a momentous passage in our narrative because as we saw last week, Moses had been sent off to the wilderness uh, to have a family, to get a job because he was impatient. He had murdered an Egyptian and God wanted to him to stay there so that he might be prepared, so that he might become the deliverer that God wants him to be many, many, many years later. And so Exodus chapter 3 is where God finally comes down and calls Moses towards this great task. As we saw last week, God saw, God remembered, and God knew his promises to Israel that the Israelites will be delivered out of the Egyptians, will be rescued from the slavery that they're in, and he will send Moses in this passage to do so. But in this passage, as we learn how God summons Moses, we learn primarily things not about Moses, but about God. So there are three things from this passage that I want us to note today. First, encountering God or what it means to encounter God. Second, the name of God. And third, the covenant in God or the God who begins a relationship with us in Jesus. All right? So first, encountering God. This passage teaches us at least two things about what it means to encounter God. Encountering God at least means that it requires God's voluntary initiative, his voluntary condescension. And second, that encountering God is actually a traumatic event. It's a traumatic encounter with the holy, all right? So first, encountering God. And encountering God requires God's initiative. Look at what happens here in verse 1. Moses was keeping with the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. What was Moses doing? Moses was simply tending to his flock, doing his job. It's another day. But he was doing this in the wilderness, right? The wilderness in the scriptures is always a place where the voice of God was not heard. It's a time of testing, of temptation, of the silence of God. Just remember how Jesus was sent out to the wilderness by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil, right? The wilderness, in other words, is a, it's a place signifying God's absence, God's silence, in a sense. And it is precisely in this context where Moses had been laboring faithfully day in and day out for years and years and years and years without the voice of God coming out to him that finally, look at verse 2, God appears. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning. Yet it was not consumed. So God shows up in this burning bush, or rather the unburning bush. And of course, it's quite a sight to behold. And so verse 3 says, Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Now notice here, right? One does not know God or gets to know God 
unless God calls him out. Unless God actually takes the initiative to come down to reveal himself to a people. Now, of course, this is climactically found in Jesus Christ and, of course, in the scriptures. This is the revealed word of God. But notice this. Moses had no access to God, and we would have no access to God unless God were to first reveal himself to us. Now, that's more significant than what we initially think, right? This is something I cover in the membership class, but this is something that we often take for granted. We assume and take for granted that we simply just know God or that it is God's job because he's all good, he's all loving, and so forth, that he would just reveal himself to every single person. But what we see in passages like this is that Moses would have no access to God unless God were to come down and call Moses out by name. God comes down in a visible form, so Moses was able to have some kind of contact with God in this unburning bush, and God calls out Moses verbally, by name. It's not as if God spoke Hebrew in eternity past, right? It's not as if God spoke in human languages, but rather God takes up creaturely forms of communication so that he would actually be known by his people. And you know this to be the case because some of you have been in bad dates before, right? You've been in particular dates before, and throughout the whole dinner, it's completely awkward because you're pouring your heart out to this girl or this man, this man right? You're pouring your heart out. You're telling them about your childhood, telling them about how much you love this dinner, telling them and complimenting them and, and what your loves and hates are, what your hopes for the future, your dreams are, right? And you, you, you pour out your heart, and your date looks at you with a blank stare, and then you're asking your date, what about you? What do you think? And the date says, okay. Okay, I mean, okay. And then you think, oh boy, this is all going downhill. What's that phenomenon? Well, what's going on in that kind of date, right? You've poured out your heart, but even if this person is right in front of you, you can't actually know this person unless they voluntarily took up the initiative to open themselves up to you to become vulnerable with you, to reciprocate in the relationship, to actually return to you and reveal themselves to you, right? In other words, you could go on and meet somebody for 15 and 20, 25 years, but you would still never truly know them unless they actually took on the initiative to open themselves up to you. For you to know anybody, there needs to be a voluntary initiative on their part. And there's not just a horizontalized level here, right? That's, that's true not just between you and friends, between you and an awkward date, that's true of everyone, and especially of someone who's above you, who is an authority over you, who's superior to you, right? I was listening to an interview. Again, I used this in the membership class yesterday, so if you attended membership class, I apologize once again to you. But here's the another analogy that I'm going to use, right? I listened to an interview recently about James Corden. Um, he was being interviewed by Howard Stern in the radio show. And James Corden last year, when Mission Impossible 7, I think, came out, uh, he was hosting Tom Cruise around uh, on his show. And apparently, the myth around Hollywood is, is that Tom Cruise is a different level of celebrityhood, right? There's like the normal celebrities, like James Corden and Jimmy Fallon, the late night talk show hosts, and then there's Oprah Winfrey, and then there's Tom Cruise. Like, very few people could actually know Tom Cruise. Very few people know his phone number, and that's an infamous fact that all celebrities know about Tom Cruise. You don't just get to know his phone number. That's ridiculous. So after James Corden you know, invited him to his show and hosted him and so forth, um, Tom Cruise apparently says to James Corden, you know what? I'm going to give you my phone number. We're going to get in touch. We're going to keep in touch. And James Corden says, no, you're not. It's okay. It's okay, Tom. It's okay. You know, I'm not going to get your phone number. And Tom Cruise says, yes, you are. And when Tom Cruise says this, you would expect, like any normal human being, 
that he would just verbally speak out loud the phone number or give him a name card or grab his phone and put in the phone number. That's not what Tom Cruise did. In fact, it only happened weeks later. They, 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 they separated from one another. A few weeks later, Tom Cruise sends an encrypted message to James Corden accompanied by the Mission Impossible tune. <laughs> and when James Corden entered into this conference room and it was dark, apparently, he clicked open this message and it says, your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to open this code, right? And so he had to sit down in this dark room alone and figure out this encrypted message that finally revealed a phone number. And he dialed the phone number and finally it rang and then a voice picked it up. Hey, hello, is this James Corden? Is this Tom Cruise? You have my number now. <laughs> See, Tom Cruise's phone number is so rare and so hard to get that he needed to send it to, through an encrypted message. Maybe he's suspicious that people will get it somehow. And here's what James Corden said to Hartstein. Here's what he, he realized. Here's what he understood. You don't just get to know Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise chooses to know you. And we feel that intuitively, like we feel that. You feel that about your superiors, right? Oh, who am I? You know, I, I can't get to know this guy. You can't just go up to the president and take a selfie with him, right? That's just not something that you could do. You feel this intuitive sense that with anyone who's above you, anyone who's higher than you, anyone who you feel is superior to you, you don't just get to know them. They have to summon you. But somehow with God, that just doesn't click. Somehow with God, we tend to think, oh, everybody knows God. I've never read the Bible, but I know that God is loving. God is always for me. God is always with me. God will never do that. I know my God. My God is a loving God, right? Somehow we think with God that he's not that much above us, that he's not that much more superior than us, that it's just his job to reveal himself to us. But just think about this, right? Moses was not just below God in terms of a creaturely level. God is the creator, Lord of the universe, giver of life. Moses was a creature, right? Moses was a murderer at this point. Not just a lowly shepherd, but someone who has a wanted status on his head. He's a criminal. Now, if God is a good, loving, and just God, and he's omnipresent, and like what Joe was saying, he knows everything you've ever done. He watches you. He's everywhere present. He's all-knowing. He knows everything, therefore, that you've ever done that nobody else knows about. He knows all of your darkest sins, your darkest past, your darkest thoughts, the things that you have done that nobody else knows about, and he sees you every single moment. Why should this God reveal himself to you? And in fact, if he does reveal himself to you, Shouldn't that be at least just a little bit terrifying to you? Shouldn't that at least give you pause? Why should this God not just reveal himself to you, but also befriend you, be for you, be supportive of you? And in fact, that's exactly what we find here in this passage. When Moses finally encounters God, it's not the reconciling friendship that he had hoped for. It is not the, the amicable, friendly interaction that he might have probably dreamed about, right? Look at what happens here in verse 5 and 6 again. Look at what it says here. God said, do not come here. Take off your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. In verse 6, he says, I am the God of the Father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Notice two things here, right? He can't come close. 
Moses understood, and God understood, that if Moses were to come close, he would be incinerated. God is a flaming fire. And Moses was unholy. God was a holy God. Moses was an unholy creature. He was a sinner. So the, the, the effect, the natural effect of what happens when a holy God encounters an unholy sinner is fear on the part of the sinner. There could be no other way. Because when an imperfect sinner encounters something holy and perfect, it's traumatizing. And here's the second part about encountering God. Encountering God is absolutely traumatic. When you first encounter God, you realize that he's absolutely different from you. He challenges your very concept of who you are. And not only that, he reveals all of your deepest inadequacies, right? Back before I was a Christian, when I was a high school student and, and SPH, right? Um, I, was, uh, I, was, I was what they call a star student. And that's not, that's not a compliment. A star student is a student at risk. I was flunking all my classes. I was, uh, I was just a mess, basically, right? And as star students are, students at risk are, we like to make fun of the high-achieving students, you know? So every time there's math class, and I hated math class, I would try to sleep at the back, and I knew the people that sat in the front row that would ask questions first, that would remind the teacher about the homework from last night, <laughs> and I would make it my duty and delight to make fun of this person, right? Let's just call this guy Tom, right? Like, Tom, oh, I hate this guy, and I'm gonna make fun of him. Oh, you nerd, you nerd, right? I would just bully this kid, right? And I would, I would completely try to annoy him and put him down. But you see, behind my attempts to try to look above it all, my attempts to look cool and not care about this Tom kid, Tom's presence, and the reason why I was doing that was because the presence of Tom made me realize how inadequate I was. Here's an achieving student. He's gaining the favor of his teachers. His peers loved him. He's getting straight A's. His parents love him. And so I was thinking to myself, oh, I hate this guy. Not because there's something inherently wrong about Tom, but because Tom made me look bad. There's something traumatic about that, you see? You see, when, when we encounter somebody who's just obviously superior than us, we're not attracted to it. There's something sinful within our hearts that make us want to shirk away, get this kid away from me. And we want to be with a collective group of people that we think are just as bad as us. Then we feel good about ourselves. I'm, I'm just equal with these people. You see, encountering God is like that, but 10 times and infinitely more traumatic. Because when you encounter God, this is when you realize how utterly inadequate you were. Encountering God is not like a walk in the park. Encountering God is like encountering somebody that makes you realize the gap between what you are and what you ought to be. Encountering God is making you realize that, my goodness, I am a sinner, and this is not my friend, first and foremost. I can't assume that he would be my friend. Why should this person be my friend? I am a sinner on the death penalty, and I'm in the same room as my judge. What can I do now? And of course, this is exactly what happens with Moses. He looks at God, and he's utterly afraid. You see, how do you know, O Christian, how do you know, O religious person of Jakarta, that when you pray, you're not praying to some imaginary God? Have you ever wondered that? You're praying out loud at night, and you're, and you're wondering, is this the God of my own imagination? Is this the God of my own making? Am I just making stuff up? You know, Brian Leftow, who's a professor at Oxford University, wrote in a book. He just moved to Rutgers in New Jersey. He wrote in a book in 2010 recently, where he said, I can make all sorts of arguments about God, 
But as I make arguments about God and describe this God, I don't know if I'm just not making stuff up. I don't know if I'm just projecting my own image into this God. I'm not, I don't know if I'm just deifying this God, right? How do you know that you're actually worshiping the right and true God and not just making stuff up? Well, here's how you know. Does this God ever contradict you? Do you ever come to this God and you realize that you've done something wrong and this God would say no to you? Do you ever come to this God and pray and recognize that this God would actually say, what you're praying is wrong and I don't support you in this? Because that's what a relationship is like. When you're in a relationship with anyone, right, that person has the opportunity to contradict you, to be different from you, to say no to you, to even annoy you, right? That person, in other words, is a person different from you, and this God is a holy God, and of course he would contradict you. Just reading recently about uh, a Japanese man who married a robot named Miku, right? And, and, and I was reading about their marriage, and uh, this Japanese man said, I love, I love this, this, this woman. You know, I would come home, and anytime I wanted, she would sing songs to me. And... You know, that might seem absurd and, and, and weird to us, but, but he, you, what was he trying to get at? He wanted someone who was just fully supportive of him to always do whatever he wants, to just say yes to whatever you to affirm him, to just love him no matter what, unconditionally, never challenge him. And of course he could do that in a robot, because he's not married to a real person. He was married to an appliance of his own imaginations. That's how we treat God most of the time. We just want someone to be for us, to affirm us. That's not the God of the Bible. And so if you're reading the Bible and you're finding things there that contradict you, right? You don't just say, ah, well, I'm just going to get rid of that part of the Bible and accept the other parts of the Bible. You're going to say to yourself, you know what? This is a real person. And I've got to go under his terms because he is a real God and I'm trembling before him. And that's what Moses understood in verse 6. But that's not just it, right? Moses' encounter with God wasn't just traumatic, right? He understood the name of God. And here's the second point, the name of God in this narrative. When Moses encountered God and saw how different he was from God, he was already intimidated. But then here's what God said to Moses in verse 7. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of the land of a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Now, so what is God calling Moses to do? God is saying to Moses, I've seen the affliction of my people. Now go back to the land that's rejected you. Go back to the most powerful man on earth. Confront him and confront him to let his slaves go. Basically, his source of free economic human labor, right? Go and do that. Confront the most powerful man on earth. Moses, of course, was not just intimidated by God, but also intimidated at the task before him. Look at verse 10. I'm sorry, verse 11. Moses said to God, who am I that should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? What, what was Moses saying? Who am I to do this? I'm just a shepherd. Uh, later he'll reveal that, you know, he's not eloquent of speech. He, he's, he's a simple person. He's been rejected. He tried to rescue the Israelites before. It didn't work out. 
He tried to do it his way, it didn't work out. So why would God be calling this wanted criminal, who's now a shepherd, out back to the most powerful man on earth? That seems like a task disproportionate to Moses' person. But notice how God replied in verse 12. He said, but Moses, you're so fascinating and great. You're just exactly the kind of person I wanted. You are the shepherd of my people. It's not what it says. God ignored the question, and he simply said, but I will be with you. Moses, it was never about you. It was never about your power, your presence, your reputation, your ways, your leadership methods or skills. What will make you distinct, and it's gonna be a theme across Moses' life, what will make you distinct and your leadership fruitful is not your own capacities or equipment or your prowess, but God's presence itself. I will be with you, God says in verse 12. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. Notice the emphasis. I will be with you. This shall be the sign I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God, namely myself, on this mountain. And so Moses is even more perplexed. Okay, so it's on your authority and on my authority. It's on your power and on my power. And Moses asked him in verse 13, if I come to the people of Israel out of this and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And here's what's behind his question, right? Names, especially in the context of the Old Testament, names in the Bible refer to something about the character of the person who bears that name. So Abram's name was changed to Abraham because he was going to be the father of many nations, right? So the name that you bear is supposed to tell you something about your family, your heritage, your powers, your, your, your status, in other words, right? So Moses is basically saying, okay, so if it's on your authority and you're going to challenge the most powerful man's authority, on what grounds can you say is the basis of your authority? What is your name, in other words? What kind of weighty name do you have that I could not bring back to the people that they would trust me and you and that Pharaoh would tremble upon this name? What kind of name is this? So that's the context, and that's really key. The name of God in this context, friends, is to ground his utter power, his utter authority. That's why God is going to mention his name here. And look at what it says in verse 14. I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. And maybe some of you are like, that doesn't say anything. That's utterly circular. Like, I am who I am. What is that even supposed to say? How is that supposed to ground anything? I am who I am. What does that mean? It sounds mystifying. It sounds mysterious. It sounds like it's circular reasoning. It sounds like it doesn't really explain anything. Well, look, friends. God is saying here to Moses that he is who he is. In other words, he is the self-defining and self-acting one. He's the only one who is complete in and of himself. He's the only one who he is himself, the standard of who he is, all right? In other words, God is not good because he matches the criteria of goodness and then that's how he becomes good. That's how we could become good. How do you become a good father? Well, you raise your kids well. Once you do that, then you become good. How do you become a good person? Well, you do these things. Once you do those things, you know, get good grades or serve your neighbor, then you become good. In other words, normal finite human beings need to do an external standard of goodness, and if we meet those standards, then we become good. That's how we prove ourselves. That's how we acquire goodness. Not so with God. What God is saying here, I'm not good because I'm with you. 
I'm not good because I've done these things. I'm not good because I've done this criteria of goodness and I participate in these things and so therefore I've become good. God is saying, I am good because I am goodness himself. I am the very definition. I am the very standard, right? How would you know that a ruler is a meter long, right? I use this in membership class. Again, I apologize to you for those of you who've stayed thinking this. You know that a ruler is a meter long if you compare it to another ruler. Maybe that's what you say. You can find a meter long ruler here. You find another meter long ruler in the other room and you say, this is a meter long ruler because this ruler conforms to this ruler. And so you, you say, okay, that satisfies my requirement. But some of you here, right, you're not satisfied with that. You're pretty OCD. You're like, no, 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 no. These two rulers in Lotte Shopping Avenue, they're actually factory defects. How do I know that these two rulers are not actually meter-long rulers? How do I know that these rulers are actually the real standard of meter-long rulers? So one of you has the resources and know-all, and you gather every single ruler in Jakarta, and you compile it all in this room, and you measure them one by one and one by one. And of course, lo and behold, some rulers are a little bit bent, some rulers are a millimeter off. Other rulers are a centimeter longer. And then one of you is even more OCD, and you're like, how do we know that it's this one ruler that's one centimeter off? Maybe that's the meter long, and everything else is with factory defects. How do you know? What would determine what is the real ruler that determines the meter long? Well, you know what you need, friends? You need to go back in time and go back to the invention of the metric system, and you need to go to the very first ruler, the ultimate ruler. And this meter-long ruler isn't a meter-long because you've compared it to another ruler. This meter-long ruler is simply the first ruler and therefore the ruler that rules all other rulers. <laughs> it is the ruler that is self-defining. In other words, when you ask, what is the meter-long ruler? You just simply point at this ruler. How do you know this meter-long ruler? Well, this is the very definition of a meter-long ruler. It's a meter-long because it is the meter-long ruler. You see, at the level of ultimate foundations, at the level of ultimate reality, you have to be circular. Why is God good? Because he matches another person's goodness? No, then that would make that person the ultimate standard, not God. God is not good because he matches that person's goodness. God is good simply because he is good. He is goodness himself. He doesn't have goodness. He doesn't acquire goodness. He is goodness. That is absolutely significant, friends. That means his goodness is self-defining. It's self-existence. It is self-sufficient. In other words, God is good no matter what he does outside of himself. A couple months ago, I was uh, talking to a particular person. Let's call him Buddy, as I called him Buddy yesterday as well. This, this person, Buddy, was having a hard time finding a girlfriend. And um, he's, he's having this emotional, existential turmoil. And so Buddy said, I just don't know if God is good unless he gives me a girlfriend. But he's been to membership class, so he knows about his name, about the divine name. And I just said to Buddy, hey, Buddy, remember membership class? He said, yeah. Do you remember about the self-defining goodness of God? Yeah. So if God is goodness himself, he's good no matter what he does or what he gives you. He's good no matter what happens. Now here's the question, buddy. Is God good if he never gives you a girlfriend? He looked at me. And I knew the answer, and he knew the answer, and I just said, let's close in prayer. It's done. <laughs> I'm joking, I didn't do that. Of course, 
but he understood. He understood. God's goodness means that he has independent goodness because he is goodness himself. He is good no matter what happens on earth because he's eternally goodness himself. He is the self-defining triune God who's good to one another in eternity past. He doesn't need to prove himself to his creatures. He is who he is. You want to bring this God to Pharaoh? Pharaoh, you are powerful in comparison to the leaders of the world. You are powerful because you became powerful when you, became, when you conquered these lands. But here's power, not because he's conquered anything. Here's power in its rawness. Here's power in its sheer forcefulness. Here's power because God is power himself. That's what God is saying to Moses. Say this to Pharaoh. I am who I am. No one can challenge this kind of goodness and power. And that also answers why God would come down to Moses. Here's what's saying. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, which in capital letters, is basically I am in the Hebrew. The Lord, or I am, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Here's what God is saying here. Moses, my choice of you had never been dependent upon you because God is not just self-defining, self-existent, self-sufficient. God is also self-acting. Why is God going to now rescue his people? Why will God now be the people's God for generations and generations? Why would God now choose Moses? Well, it's because God simply chose to do so because he had made a covenant, because he had made a promise God has, God's love for the Israelites and God's love for Moses had never been contingent upon Moses' performance. God simply chose to be with them. God chooses simply because he chooses. If we say God chooses because Moses was powerful, then we're making God dependent upon Moses. But because God is who he is, he chooses because he chooses. He will be with them because he will be with them. Nothing the Israelites could do at this point could swerve the faithfulness of God. And nothing you could do, my friends, could change the love of God for you. And nothing Moses could do, not his past, not his qualifications, could change God's mind. Moses will now be God's means of delivering his people. He's not, God is not just a self-defining God, he's a self-acting God. And so God will now rescue his people through Moses. So friends, God's name means that he's independent and he doesn't have to have a relationship with us. He doesn't have to condescend. He could have left the Israelites in destitute. He doesn't have to covenant and make these promises to his people, right? And so here's my third point, friends. The covenant in God. Let's look back upon the most perplexing passage of this, of this narrative, right? The burning bush itself. Notice some weird features in this passage that actually point us to the fact that God has condescended to reveal himself to his people. Look at verse 2. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Now remember, right? what does the burning bush actually mean? What does the unburning bush actually typify or point to? The unburning bush, just let's reflect upon this, reflects a fire which is something that is consuming, something powerful, something potent, something dangerous, a fire always consumes the thing on which it depends on, right? A fire on a bush means that the bush would would automatically, naturally be consumed. 
In other words, a fire and a bush cannot coexist together. A fire and a bush should consume one another, right? But here's what God is doing in this unburning bush, right? It points to something else. God is saying in Moses here, as God is coming down to dwell with Moses and to dwell with the sinful people, he's saying this. There will come a time, Moses, where I will dwell with you as this fire dwells with this bush. This fire should consume this bush. The holiness of God should only consume a sinful people. And God is saying, but there will come a time where I will fully dwell with you. And Moses, you won't have to take off your sandals anymore. You could come near and you could just be with me as I'm with you in the, fly, in the fire, in the flames, right? And so therefore God is saying, there will come a time when my holiness will not consume my people. And guess what? That happened exactly in Pentecost, as we mentioned a few weeks ago, right? What happened in Pentecost when Jesus' sacrifice was given out and the Father approved that Jesus took your place, he made you clean so that God would dwell with his people. There were tongues of fire above the people in Pentecost. Remember that? Which symbolized that God was finally now not dwelling in a temple made with human hands, but now God would dwell with his people just as this fire would dwell with the bush and not consume this people. That's what God is saying here in the unburning bush. There will come a time, Moses, where I will dwell fully and completely inside my people and I will not consume them. They will be so intimately close with me, relationally, covenantally, that I will not consume them. And how is God gonna do this? By way of a covenant. Well, what is a covenant? God condescending to have a relationship with us. Look at verse two again, and look at verse three. Sorry, verse four. Verse two says that there is an angel of the Lord who appeared to him, right? The angel of the I am. So someone who is speaking on behalf of God, who is somehow distinct from God. The angel speaks on behalf of God. Notice that the angel of the Lord is someone who is a messenger. Now, angelic beings, right, in the Hebrew language, the word angel could mean simply messenger. It doesn't have to refer to the seraphs with the wings that you might think about, but rather angels could refer simply to the messenger of the Lord. But this angel of the Lord who spoke suddenly in verse 4, look at this, was simply God himself. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called him out to out the bush. So somehow this angel of the Lord is different from God, but at the same time, this angel of the Lord is God himself. God called him out of the bush. Was it the angel of the Lord who called out, or was it God who called out of the bush? In this unburning bush, one person spoke in two almost distinct beings, but not so. Someone who is distinct from one another, but at the same time identical with one another, does that sound familiar? In the beginning of the book of John, it says that in the beginning, the word was with God. In other words, there was someone who was speaking the word of God who was different from God, but at the same time, the word was God. The logos, the word himself was distinct from God, but identical to God. And this word didn't just come down in the form of a flame didn't just come down and spoke human language and called us by name. But this word came down, not in a bush, not in a flame, but in the form of a human flesh. And the word became flesh and he dwelled among us. And his name was Jesus Christ. And so 
here's what happened, friends. In the New Testament, this word of God, this same God who's been with Abraham, Isaac, Moses, this God that was foreshadowing his coming in the flesh, who walked with his people from generation to generation, finally did come down. Not just to become like us, but to become one of us. And that's exactly who his name was in Jesus Christ. But instead of embracing him, instead of the Israelites, now coming to see him, you were the God who rescued our forefathers. You were the God who covenanted with my forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you were the one that delivered us out of slavery. They rejected him, they betrayed him, and they crucified him. Now turn your Bible to John 18, verse 6. John 18, verse 6. I want us to see something that maybe if you've been coming to CC, I've seen before, but this passage just keeps coming back at me because it is utterly profound. John 18, verse 6. Look what it says here. So here's what happened in John chapter 18, right? Jesus is just, has just been betrayed by Judas. And now the soldiers are coming to capture him, right? Let's read from verse 4. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? These were the soldiers that were brought by Judas to capture him in the garden. And so Jesus was going to be taken off to be put to trial and crucified. Whom do you seek? Verse 5. They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus said to them, I am he. But the Greek is more terse. There's no he in the Greek. It simply says, ego eimi, I am. And what happened? They drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. He is who he is. This is the great I am. The moment Jesus spoke the powerful name of God, the soldiers fell to the ground because they were standing on holy ground. Here's someone who had always been coming to his people from the very beginning, but this time in human flesh. And yes, he didn't look like a king at all. The great I am no longer looked like a flaming fire or a king with crowns, but a crucified savior crowned not with jewels, but with a crown of thorns. This is the great I am. The self-existent one came down and died the death that you should have died, and he took your place on the cross. And he said this again and again and again, and that's precisely why people wanted to crucify him. He was claiming to be the very God of the universe. Jesus was no mere example, prophet, or teacher. He is the great I am who appeared to Moses in the burning bush. And friends, so that if you see Jesus Christ and you see this gospel, friends, you're not just seeing a message of good advice. You're seeing the God who's walked with his people finally say, I will do this myself. You cannot rescue yourselves. I will take your place. I'll be crucified. And even though I was independent of you, I will now become dependent. Even though I was the powerful one, I will now become powerless. And he took your place because you were a sinner and you couldn't have done it yourself. He was your substitute. Behold your God. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your gospel, your word. Help us now worship you. Help us now see, Lord God, how the, all of the Old Testament foreshadows who you are. 
Help us see and therefore worship this God that's always been with us and finally with us in the form of your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.